how we feel is the most important thing, right? And I know this from I've had extremely successful and wealthy clients who've checked every box and are absolutely miserable and hate themselves. How you feel is the most important thing. But so many of us typically are not raised with in an environment where taking care of our feelings and emotions is role modeled. Hello again. My name is Benoit Kim, and together we will be exploring the depth of the human mind. According to research, alcohol is now the number one most abused substance in the world, while alcohol use disorder is the most common type of substance use disorders in the United States. Today's conversation will explain the internal realities that lead to alcohol usage and why drinking is often a cultural commitment. Veronica Valley is a published author, alcohol recovery expert, and the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Soberful. This excerpt from Veronica's website also beautifully echoes my three years of sobriety journey. Funny how the blackouts, arguments, embarrassments, fatigue, and sometimes dangerous behaviors and terrible hangovers are muted by the glow of those first few drinks and the promises they make to us. You can expect to learn about the popular myth around alcoholism, why addiction is often just a symptom, how alcohol problems start within, how to overcome addiction, and the necessity of emotional sobriety work. Welcome to Discover More. Discover More, Discover More is a show, is a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Veronica, welcome to the show. Hi, Benoit. Nice to be here. Uh, as an expert who worked in private practice, treatment center, and criminal justice fields, and now being a coach with worldwide clients, could you dispel the most common myths and beliefs about drinking? Yeah, I've actually been sober close to 23 years. I've been working for over 20 years. Um, so I think, gosh, we've normalized what's, what is actually abnormal drinking. You know, we've inserted it everywhere. It's how we view somebody with a problem. So I, you got sober at 27, right? If it's been, yeah, me too. It's a great oh. age to get sober. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great age because you've got so much ahead of you. And, and it's not the, uh, not drinking. It's the personal development it forces you to do that will benefit you so much, which I know that you're already deeply into. You know, I thought you had to drink every day. I thought you had to drink first thing in the morning. I basically, and I still come across, this is generally, you know, somebody with an alcohol problem is usually a homeless person on a bench. If you have a nice car or a job, went to college or go on nice vacations, you can't possibly have a drinking problem. So that's kind of generally, I think, how people see, you know, we know through the research that it's about 10 years from the first day that somebody begins to wonder about their drinking to when they actually give up. And, and what you're doing in that 10 years is this constant kind of like, am I that bad? Am I that bad? And, and it's very easy to look around and go, oh, I'm not as bad as that person. Oh, thank God. You know, I don't drink it. You know, I've never done that. So I'm fine. So we're kind of constantly trying to justify our drinking and, and meanwhile, alcohol's got inserted in all these places that it doesn't belong. You know, I'm a mom of two kids. The whole kind of mommy needs wine, drinking culture is everywhere. 
you know, I used to live near New York and yoga studios would have yoga and wine. Those are not two things that go together. You know, that's really disrespectful of the yoga culture to insert toxic carcinogenic substance into it. So I think that's one of the big myths is that um, you have to have, you have to drink every day, you know, you have to drink first thing in the morning. So I tell my clients, an alcohol problem shows up internally years before it shows up externally. So internally is the kind of fear and anxiety, not liking yourself, shame, regret, not feeling good enough. And all of that could be banded together under the umbrella of just not feeling comfortable in your own skin. As soon as I heard that phrase, I was like, that's how I felt my whole life. I've never felt comfortable being Veronica. I just didn't really like myself that much. I was trying to run away from myself. And alcohol eased that. And my culture, you know, you grew up in Paris, it's different. England, we have this awful binge drinking culture. So when I got sober at 27, I went to a 12 step program. This is back in 2000 because there wasn't anything else then. I was, people were having DUIs and getting arrested and were getting fired from jobs. And none of those things had happened to me. And it wasn't until someone spoke about what was going on on the inside that I began to realize that my drinking was only a symptom. It was my feelings and emotions. And what was inside of me was what the problem was, that stopping drinking wasn't going to be enough. I needed to do more than that. Only people whose drinking isn't working for them think about not drinking. There's a lot there. So I want to go into what you just talked about, this common misconception that I think people associate productivity with level of health or lack of addiction. And if you look at the two most rigorous and grittiest fields, it's probably lawyers and physicians. And if you look at them, those two also happen to coincide with some of the highest alcoholism and drug, drug addictions, except they're functional workaholics and functional alcoholics. And I think because at least in the U.S., this level of productivity is put on a pedestal and a lot of people associate their self-worth to their level of productivity. It's a cultural norm and cultural narratives. Any thoughts there? Yeah, like the work hard, play hard, right? Um, two things that clients say when they get on a call with me, they, they, wherever they live, I have clients all over the world, Europe, Australia, America, Canada, and they'll say, um, so where I live, where I live, like whenever there's like a, you know, summer concert or whatever, people really drink. And the other thing people say is, uh, in my industry, in my industry, people really drink in my industry. And that's, and I always kind of chuckle and tell them everybody says that about where they live and whatever industry they're in. I, I will tell you though, my highest, my sort of client group that I have the biggest is doctors and nurses and teachers. Teachers drink a lot. I was a teacher for, I was part of this AmeriCorps program called the Teach for America that Michelle Obama mm. was used to very mm. uh, big about. You teach in inner city kids. And it's probably the most profoundly challenging experience I've had because I'm teaching inner city uh, black and brown youth in Philadelphia, which is a major city with the lowest literacy rate and some of the highest crime rates. And one thing that shocked me is every single day at 4.30, all teachers band together to go happy hour and they drank for hours. 
and they repeat and rinse and repeat. And I realized stress and increased drinking, because you alluded to this in passing, uh, addiction is often a manifestation of something deeper. A hundred percent. And I, I get medical people because they, they have such a problem of getting help because it can't go on their record. I kind of always joke, I, I have a full set, full deck of doctors. I have had every specialism possible because it's much hard. I mean, it's really ridiculous that it's much harder for them to get help. So they don't until things get really bad or they find their way to someone like me where it's, it's private and it's not, you know, going to go, it's not through their insurance or anything like that. And, uh, you know, after everything we've been through, you know, our medical staff have really been traumatized and, and all of that kind of stuff. I want to just clarify something I said, because it's ringing in my ears about white drinking culture. I didn't, what I was kind of thinking there is about, it's not that in, there, there's a kind of whole thing about entitlement and drinking that's also, so it's really like the British when they drink, like, I don't know if you've been to these places, but if you go to like, we love our sun because we have terrible weather. So you go to Spain and Mallorca and all these places, and it's just full of the British getting absolutely shamefully drunk, embarrassingly drunk. White men have the privilege. So being a drunk white man is okay. Being a drunk white woman is okay. If you're a mother, there's a, you know, drink if you're a mother, but if you cross the line, then that's the worst thing in the world. And then if you're a drunk black man, if you're a drunk black mother, that's the bottom. So there's a real, there's a whole kind of all of that going on as well. And I think there's a lot of, um, I think white people have a lot less consequences for being externally binge drinking, all of that kind of stuff. And we've seen that with alcohol. We've seen that with drugs. It's different for white people than it is for people of color. Yeah, Veronica, I appreciate you naming the implicit cultural influences that, uh, that is always at play. And I actually want to lean into that and ask you about this questions about emotions, because you talked about a lot of us feel uncomfortable with our skins and being left alone with our thoughts and feelings. So we use the social lubricant because alcohol is a great social lubricant. It opens a lot of people up, even a lot of introverts who derive energy from within. So I know one of your many expertise is emotional intelligence and emotions and alcohol addiction may sound seemingly unrelated. But can you share why that is not the case since we both established in the last 10 minutes that addictions, if not all, but most are manifestations of something deeper since internal always manifests externally? How we feel is the most important thing, right? And I know this from I've had extremely successful and wealthy clients who've checked every box and are absolutely miserable and hate themselves. How you feel is the most important thing, but so many of us typically are not raised with in an environment where taking care of our feelings and emotions is role modeled. So I know that was the case for me. So, and you can see this generationally, and I'll be interested to hear what it is like from your culture. So for my culture, it's from the first world war where all of these men went off to fight in utter horror and were not allowed to ever talk about it. And we're coming apart at the seams. And that was kind of my grandmother's generation is we don't talk about anything upsetting. We just don't. And so I had all these big feelings inside of me that I was like, <gasps> it wasn't allowed. It wasn't permitted. I, it, you know, those kind of family messaging, it's very powerful. And I'll talk about, let, remind me to talk about attachment and authenticity. So for me, alcohol was like, 
I, I've, you know, felt like it's coming part of the seams and alcohol just fixed that. And so then what happens, and I started drinking at 14, 15, is not only did I not learn it in my family, I then missed opportunities as I was growing from a teenager into my early 20s to develop those skills. So, you know, life is just lessons, right? <laughs> you learn the lesson. If not, don't worry, the lesson will come around again. <laughs> and all of those are, are life lessons. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of being a mother and the work that I do. Struggle is a part of life. And I feel that as a culture, we're leaning towards stealing the struggle from people, particularly children. So I struggled massively. And the only thing I had was alcohol to help me with the struggle. I had a lot of anxiety. That was a struggle. So I'd use alcohol to take that away. I didn't like myself. I didn't, didn't know how to socialize. I didn't know how to connect with people without it. So I just defaulted everything to alcohol. So I missed all these opportunities to learn tough but important life lessons that we all must learn as we go along. I often talk about per narrative therapy, which is a modality in psychotherapy. The ethos is that the client is not the problem. The problem is a problem. I share that because I think a lot of us, as you said, without the distress tolerance skills, without the toolkits, we go to sort of these external tools like drugs or alcohol in our cases that we're talking about. And even suicide, that's my, like, not specialty, but my background. I'm a veteran, so I have a lot of interest in psychedelic therapy, which is I'm going for, and also suicide prevention, since the landscape has been very scant, at least in the United States and the world at large. And we also talk, we often talk about that when people take their own lives or when people fall to addictions, it's not that they're incompetent or they lack willpower. It's that they just don't have adequate skills like what you alluded to, where you never had the opportunity to refine, internalize, adapt, and craft your skills. And like, how do you view that where for so many of us that we don't have the community, we don't have the maybe privilege of knowledge, maybe we don't have this level of innate curiosity. And there's so much misinformation with TikTok, people, everyone and their mothers are spreading advices like it's Oprah giving cars away without the credentials of Oprah. Like what can people do when they have nothing and nowhere to turn to except readily available coping skill like drinking? Well, that's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question. <laughs> um, I think it goes back to the struggle, right? And I think it, it's also about curiosity. What saved my life is I was a train wreck. Like I, I just made bad choice after bad choice. But I had this deep, deep sort of feeling inside of me that there was something better. I just had to figure out how to get it. Like I didn't have the how, but I believed the how was out there. Mm. Actually, I know how I'm going to answer this question. <laughs> okay. Do you know what I think is one, as a psychotherapist, I'm not a psychotherapist anymore, but I was back in the UK. I think reading books is life-saving and I think it's the most important thing. And I think it's from reading, and I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, you know, I, we didn't have, like, I was trying to explain to my kids, like, our TV show is on at four o'clock and if you miss the TV show, that was it. It's just, I can't even imagine how we lived. It's so crazy now. Like, how did we ever meet anyone for lunch? You know, like, You hope um, they show up. Yeah, basically, I think that's what we did. I think we just hope they showed up. So I, I think it was from reading books that gave me 
some kind of feeling that like I could get it too. I wasn't going to be left out of it. What I noticed as a psychotherapist, and I know this, I've noticed this in my work and I find it fascinating is there was a difference with clients who read books and clients who didn't. Mm. So when I recommended like, you know, often I would often would recommend a self-help book of some kind or a memoir, you know, and the clients who read books as a psychotherapist, I could engage with their internal world at a much, much deeper level than people who didn't read books. And I'm sure there's got to be some research on that somewhere, but it's always kind of fascinated me. There's something that only reading can do in that it, it awakens empathy. It ignites your internal experience. So read books. All the answers are there. And ironically, that reading is also dying art with the rise of short form content, TikTok, highly scripted 17 second reels. And I'm asking this questions because I think it's important where I love you brought up reading. A lot of men clients come to me saying that, oh, we're just going to talk about feelings. You're not going to change my life. You're right. I'm not here to change your life. I just hopefully help you go from a place of stuckness. That's what trauma is to a place of unstuckness. And I tell people that I view psychotherapy or life coaching or whatever as a discovery process or like a navigation GPS systems. Reading is also another GPS systems. And there's many, you can take different detours and get to the same destinations. Uh, But I want to segue that into this questions where I think it will echo both of our sobriety journeys where I've never faced so much resistance when I told people I don't drink. (sighs) Like when you tell them you don't smoke weed or cigarettes, they say, oh, good for you, man. When you tell them you don't drink, why not? Not even a drink? Why don't you just moderate? You know, all these probing happens and I always say to them internally, not to them, but why are you asking why are you making me second question my decisions and this ability to eliminate all distractions? I can't even tell you the amount of people I eliminated from my life once I realized alcohol is not the bridge anymore. All these drinking party friends, superficiality, they're just gone because I realized, oh, I wanted to hang out with them because 30% was for alcohol. So when you take away 30%, it became sub-thresholds. So I realized I don't really need them or vice versa. Um, But for you, like, did you resist or not resist? Did you experience any of the said resistance? Like people just bombarding with, why Veronica? Why did you quit drinking? Why don't you just have, have a sip of wine with us? That's so interesting because I got sober almost 23 years ago and not it sounds like not much has changed. <laughs> yeah, okay. And at 27, relatively young. Can I ask, did you do drugs as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, that's why people get sober younger, really, is drug use as well. It just brings you down really fast. It's because, and again, it's going back to your first question, and I write about this in my book. As a culture, we have been culturally conditioned to believe that alcohol is the best vehicle to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxing, and rewarding yourself. So, I mean, you have such an interesting kind of up- upbringing. Um, mine was very typically British, assumed you're going to drink. Not drinking was never going to, was never presented as an option. You're going to grow up, you're going to get a driver's license, you're going to get a job and you're going to drink alcohol because that's what adults do. 
not drinking alcohol was never presented. And it, it only really is as if you come from really, you know, particular religion, I think that it's ever presented that way. It's just that it's alcohol assumption. So I saw all of the older adults and, and it looked like they were in this magical world and I couldn't wait to get into that magical world. So I liken it to the emperor's new clothes because I did have fun drinking and using drugs, but there was always a cost and the cost was always quite high with me. Like, I mean, I was 15 years old when I was in blackout lying in a gutter outside a bar with the landlord throwing a bucket of water over me. Wow. And I remember think I remember thinking and I came around and I thought this isn't like this isn't good. And all my friends went, "Oh my god, Veronica, you are so crazy." Like you and I loved the I loved that, you know, positive like, oh, like I'm a crazy wild child. Like I loved that identity. Um so when you tell your friends that you're not drinking and by the way, this happens at every age. Like I have 70 year olds. I have every decade. What people hear is that you've said, I volunteered to never have fun again for the rest of my life. <laughs> so they're like, oh, Benoit. And they, they care about you. They're like, Benoit, like me. Right. So again, it's a limiting belief that was uh, internalized that, uh, that we now believe is our own. People are very, very, as you may have found, committed to that worldview. And you are threatening that worldview. So if you are going to the club, going to the concert, going to dinner, laughing, joking, and having a nice time with alcohol, that deeply threatens their worldview. It sounds like you've discovered you really find out who your friends are. And, and in truth, the only people who are ever bothered by you not drinking are the people who have a issue with alcohol themselves. People who don't have an issue, like they're just like, oh, great. But people who have an issue with alcohol, but they're not ready to look at it. <laughs> Thank you. They don't, they don't want to stop. It's much easier to persuade you that you are wrong. So it's, it's this cultural commitment. Uh, so is that, so you come from these three different cultures. Do you think it's true in all of those cultures that you come from? Asia is interesting because drugs are less available and they're way more stigmatized and the consequent like punitive measures for yeah. drugs are quite high in Korea yeah. and Japan, or not Japan, Korea and China, which is a culture as I lived and I'm very familiar with. So alcohol is like the de facto mode of altering your consciousness, so to speak. So, and whereas in Paris, I mean, you speak to it, right? They take two hours yeah. break every lunch. Yeah. Now they're having some wild protests, changing their all that stuff, but then they will never cut out alcohol. But I think binge drinking is less prevalent in Paris because they also, food comes with it. And I think they drink more for the sociality aspect versus the coping internal reality aspects, uh, generally speaking. In the US, I think it's very, the Anglo culture, the Anglo-American culture, like the pioneers of British, when you don't drink, it's your social outcast. You, you don't belong. You can't hang with us. And my favorite thing I heard recently, so I'm just using it here, where tradition is peer pressure by dead people. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that really fits with alcohol because it, this is a decades in the making. It's not new. This is 50 years, 60 years, 70 years since World War One, World War Two, And of course, even if you go farther in a lot of 
areas where like Russia, it's cheaper and safer to drink alcohol than water because their water quality is so poor. So I think there's a lot of um, forces at bay, but I do agree. I think it's a cultural commitment that collectively we decided that this is how we do our lives and this is how yeah. reality is. And if you yeah. dare to challenge that, yes. then you either conform or you get casted out. It's interesting. And I've seen lots of people falter with that. You know, the connection and belonging is a huge human needs. And it's very, very hard if you feel like that. When I got sober, I had this sort of big, drinking group and they all fell away as fair fair weather friends more or less most of them and then i had a handful of good friends who were supportive a hundred percent knew i couldn't drink and i a hundred percent knew that the consequences and cost were so high to me i was willing to do whatever it took and if that meant i had two friends that meant i had two friends uh, luckily that's not the case and that that's the big thing you know i don't know if you're discovering that but like the first two or three years, I began to realize I was having more fun than anyone else. I'd go out, I'd dance, I'd spend 20 bucks. I'd go to a concert. I wouldn't miss any songs because I was queuing for the bathroom or queuing for beer. I think, why would you drink beer? And then 20 minutes later, I have to spend half an hour. I mean, it's like, I, I remember being at concerts and seeing my friends miss half of it. You have to discover that it doesn't happen on day three. You know, that there there is in the beginning, and I stress this to people, early sobriety is not how it is long term. The first year-ish is very unique. And and there's definitely I definitely had Saturday nights when I was 27, 28, and I was home going, This is it. <laughs> you know, this is fun. Um, you'll definitely have some nights like that, but it doesn't stay that way. Early sobriety is very unique. It doesn't, you know, if it was still like that, I don't, you know, God. And it just gets better and life, you know, it's it, there's an expansion. Because the, the other thing you realize is people are kind of doing these events. Like they're going, you know, I had a client who, uh, she really wanted to be sober, lots of issues. And she was sober for a few months. And in the summer, her and her friends would go to this big music concert and camp for several days. And it was a big thing and they always got wasted. And she was very kind of like, mm. and I'm like, t like, tell me exactly, like, break it down. You arrive on the Thursday, tell me what happens. Well, what it turns out is it's really expensive. You're in a tent. It's really hot. She's wasted or hungover, loses her friends half the time, misses most of the bands, disgusting toilets. And I'm like, why don't you just stay home? At least you'd be in your own bed. Like it doesn't like you, like all these great artists and you didn't really see any of them because you were whatever. So I like, I don't know if you've noticed this. There's a lot of kind of like, we're going to go and do this. We're going to go and do this amazing thing. But really the amazing thing is about a vehicle to drink. It's not so much about the amazing thing, the concert or whatever it is. It's that we can drink there. And I found that really interesting. Have you noticed that? I think you're speaking to like FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And the idea that you're not creating collective memories with those that you care about through the vehicle of drinking, even though I think 80% of the plans you pre-plans with alcohol involved, 80% doesn't really happen. Like you said, when you go to like Coachella or Burning Man, or a lot of these festivals, half the time is wasted on doing something else other than the actual experience within the container itself. Yeah. Um, and I want to ask you the question you asked me at the table, attachment and 
authenticity. Uh, I love attachment theories, and of course, now TikTok. I struggle with that society oscillates, and I think ten years ago, nobody talked about feelings, emotions, mental health, and now on TikTok, everyone and their mothers are now psychotherapists, apparently, and that they're just talking about everything's about attachment. Even though, even with attachment styles, it shifts based on who you're with, and it's 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 ebbs and flows. But I want to bring this in now because you talk about friendships, sense of belonging,、mm. because belonging and sociality is a root of mental health. If you look at depression, the cardinal personality trait, the the root of depression is social isolation, especially as you age older and older, according to research. So, like through your work. Evolve and shifts over time since your early days until now. How do you like? How did you grapple, or what did you realize about your own attachment styles and this idea that you really have to exert a lot of efforts to get reconnected to your authentic inner child or authentic inner self? I write about this in my book as well. It's one of the pillars of sobriety is connection, and that we we have to have we all have to have meaningful connection. I mean, we know loneliness takes years off your life, and Loneliness was the pervading feeling of of my life until I got sober. Like I was an only child with a mother with severe mental health problems, growing up in poverty. I never felt good enough, and I never felt like I fitted in. And I always felt like there was a glass screen between me and everyone else. And I felt excruciatingly lonely. I'm an extrovert, so I always quite most of the time would have people around me, but I still didn't feel it. It still felt just a little bit out of my grasp. So, are you familiar with Dr. Gabor Mate's work? Gabor, yes, Gabor Mate, big fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he talks about trauma being the root of all of addiction, and he has a video. It's on YouTube that explains it really well. Because I have clients who come to me and say, "I didn't like my childhood was pretty good. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I can't think of anything." Massive, that like traumatic. I didn't, you know, and and so he explains that as children we have two fundamental needs that have to be met, and one is for attachment, which we understand fairly well. We understand with infants won't thrive with unless they're attached to their caregiver. Even though culturally, I just feel that we're almost like anti-attachment how we support parents. But anyway. What's important is attachment is important in every stage of our life, not just as children. It's important when we're seventy.、Um, and the other important vital human need we have is authenticity, to be who we really are. What happens is, because we know attachment is so vital for our survival, especially when you're little, we compromise our authenticity needs to meet our attachment needs.、Mm. So an an example of this would be, for instance, if you were gay and you grew up in a family where that wasn't going to be accepted, and apart from that, maybe you know they were a loving family, very involved and that kind of stuff, and you had to push that part of yourself down because you knew if you came out that that would cause massive you know issues or whatever. That's just an obvious example, but there's many. You know, for me, it was I just felt very disapproved of, like. Who the essence of who I was was too much for my family, and it felt very disapproved of. Like still, when I go home, and I so my family's in England, I live in America. When I go home and see my immediate family, they're like, "Hello," like I've just popped to the shops. <laughs> <laughs> when I see my friends, we're like, "Hi, oh my god!" 
you know, it, it's like, that's the difference. So I felt like I had to, my authentic self, I felt was always disapproved of. So I had to squash it. That experience is traumatic. That's where the trauma comes from. So obviously if you experience some kind of abuse, those are, those are traumas. But having to disengage from your authentic self is a traumatic experience. So sobriety is really the journey back to oneself. That's what sobriety is, is the journey back to authentic selves, because you've probably discovered drinking and using drugs, I left myself by degrees. I would say something that wasn't representative of my values or what I felt, but I said it. I did things that wasn't representative of my values or who I was, but I did them. And so by degrees, I left myself. And that is the most painful experience that you can ever have. And you can't connect with people if you've left yourself to the point where you don't like yourself because I can't let you in. I can't be vulnerable with you because I'm pretty disgusting inside and you'll see that and then I will definitely be rejected. So maybe if I kind of present a self that you approve of, maybe that you won't leave me and that will be good enough. So, And I think that that's a struggle and a battle that people will go through for years. I wrote an email about this the other day. There's only one way for people like us. There's just no other, there was just no other way. If I only meant I had one friend left in the world, so be it. But I I cannot walk in this earth for decades not being who I really am. It's like the idea that I'd rather be loved for who I truly am versus rather be liked for who I'm not. Yeah. And my brain's going some weird directions and I think we can make this fit where I've been having a lot of offline conversations with friends who I respect about advice giving. And I'm tying this with TikTok that I mentioned earlier, where I tell I have a lot of mentees. I'm involved in church. Um, I'm in a place where I can give back to younger folks, like college kids, uh, recent graduates, et cetera. And I often tell them, even for myself, as their mentor, I tell them, don't trust my advice. Trust the person who's giving the advice. Because advice requires context. And without context, all advices are obsolete. Because what works for you and I may not work for someone else and etc. Like, how do you think about like advice giving? Uh, because you talked about this authentic self that we get lost through this drunk goggle phenomena through alcohol. Because I feel like these connections can be, I guess, perceived visually, at least for me, where Yourself is still there, but it's more blurry. It's like a pixelated image of who you once were. And that pixelatedness is because of drugs and alcohol. And when you're under the influence, that pixelated self feels good. It feels like yourself or this perceived self versus the actual self. But I think I'm tying this advice because my friend, Sarah, she talked about this something really profound that stuck with me. She said that you also have to be mindful of seeking advices because the more advices you seek the more you internalize someone else's voice and in turn someone else's voice over time silos and silences your own voice any thoughts there so i think there's several things so when we return to ourselves and we're we're connected to ourselves and we're congruent which is our insides and our outsides match we're capable of better discernment mm. So, um, you know, first of all, unsolicited advice is always going to fall on death ears. So right. going around advising people is never going to work. But 
if we seek advice, then we, and we can use our discernment, then I think it can be very helpful. So, you know, I've, I've kind of noticed one thick pattern that I have is I've had lots of mentors over the years. And I always get to a point where I outgrow them. It's not like it's a fracture or anything. It's like, so I recalling like with my AA sponsor, like one day I just realized we were peers and he was no longer on a pedestal for me. And he's still the person that I trust and go to for advice, but I no longer have him like, <gasps> what he says is like <gasps> divinely, you know, I, I don't feel like that anymore. So I think that what you're saying is it needs to be combined with connection to yourself and discernment because we don't know what we know until we say it out loud. So sometimes when we're giving advice, we're telling ourselves, aren't we, rather than the person. Projections of our own thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that that's really interesting is, I guess this is with unsolicited advice, is, you know, we're surrounded by teachers all the time. People, if you look around, you are surrounded by teachers. And it's not what people say, it's what people do. It's patterns of behavior. And being aware and awake to that, like I study human behavior. I, I always have. I've just found people really fascinating. So it's kind of, I guess, no accident I came into doing what I'm doing. <laughs> like, why do, why do they do that? Why are they saying that? Why? And it's human behavior that will tell you everything you need to know about somebody, not what they say. And it's not even their behavior, it's their patterns. Patterns of behavior will tell you everything. So let's go into that. I know one of the big pillar of your book and your stories is you became, you achieved a sustainable state of sobriety by yourself. And of course, you attended AA meetings as you talked about in 2000, since there are limited resources at the time. Like what were some of the helpful solicited or unsolicited devices that I think gave you empowerment? Because I think it all comes down to feeling empowered to tackle possibility of change. Because I think change is always hard, period. Career pivots, relationship breaks up, loss and grief, going from a place of drunkenness to sobriety, whatever changes are always hard because change requires uh, dismantling of your fixed perceptions of what, how life is. That's what changes, right? It's interruptions of the pattern. Um, can you recall some of the helpful advices or, and our feedback and support that allowed you to come to this place of, you know what? I feel ready to tackle this seemingly very scary, daunting place of sobriety. So it's all about motivation. We will work harder to get out of pain than into pleasure. So, you know, where you are right now, if you're like having an okay, you know, pretty good day. And I said, Benoit, do this really, really, really hard thing because the reward at the end of it is beyond anything you could imagine. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you're just sort of in a place of all right, there's there's not so much motivation for me um my motivation was pain and i had really bad anxiety and panic attacks like really really bad I, and and i was suicidal and they were so awful i just got to a point where i was prepared to do whatever it took and i believed when i stopped drinking that my i i was 100% signed up to the belief system that we talked about earlier that i was never going to have fun again 
uh, that I was never going to have friends again. I was never going to go dancing again. My life would be quite sort of sedate, nun-like, quite boring. And I wasn't happy about it, but I was accepting of that was a much better scenario than the anxiety and panic that I constantly lived with. So I, I accepted that. I was wrong. My life expanded and was incredible, but it's the motivation is really important and, and it's pain. Pain is the greatest motivator. There's definitely moments where you go along and after a few months, you're feeling so much better. And then that like, oh, why can't I just have a glass of wine on a Saturday night? Like that's perfectly normal. Everyone does that, which is why the community part is really important is that I think it's different for everyone. It's a process. I got there fairly quickly in a one, 100% accepting that I cannot drink alcohol. If, as long as I do that, everything else is negotiable. And was beginning to see these like kind of possibilities that actually, actually I did quite enjoy myself last night. Like, ooh, you know, that kind of stuff. I didn't get sober on my own. I got sober in the fellowship of AA, but I did get, I didn't have any family or support or money. I mean, that was it. That I had nowhere else to go. Were you asking me what's like some of the really important advice I've been given? Um, that sort of allowed you to feel more empowered to sustain. What I was told was the answer to that is to do the 12 steps. And I was like, all right, then suck me up. I'll do them. <laughs> like if you're saying that it's going to make me feel better and I won't feel like that. Great. If you'd have told me every morning to stand upside down in a flower pot and sing the national anthem, and that will like after six months, I will feel so much better. I'd have done it. I'd have done it. I, I was prepared to do anything. I, it was so bad. So uh, remaining teachable, willingness and remaining teachable is probably some of the best advice I've got is that I know whenever I've, and I have felt this in my sobriety, like I've really got it down is <laughs> the time when I usually a big life lesson comes along. Uh, remaining teachable, also completing things. I think I see a lot of people do that in sobriety is like they dip, they dip in this, they dip in that. And then they say, it doesn't, did that, didn't work. Well, they didn't do it. They dipped doesn't work if you just do 20% of it. It's not going to work. So if you're going to do a program of any kind, commit to it and do all of it and then decide. One of the important life lessons that I've learned is, um, and there's a great book that I give to all my friends when they're going to have a baby. It's called Brain Rules for Babies. And it's by a neuroscientist who, when his wife was pregnant, wanted to just see what the scientific research said that you needed to do to raise a happy, healthy, successful child. And he said, I was completely shocked by the results. Impulse control, teach them empathy and do everything you can to enable their friendships. So um, prioritizing connection, investing in connection, it was definitely something that, I don't know if that was direct advice, but I observed that that was really true. Like invest in the connections that matter to you because it, yeah, those investments will pay off. This is great. So speaking of remain teachable and connections, have you learned any lessons even now from some of your clients and patients you worked with? And not just to tie in your theme of humility, because that's what remain teachable is, is this internalized truth that no matter how far we've come, air quote, in life, we can always learn something from our fellow humans who walk this path of life together. Uh, I want to preface by saying that I'm asking these questions because often as a former teacher through Teacher America, as a former policymaker, and now as a psychotherapist, 
I often, I used to have this idea that, oh, I'm the subject, subject expert. I'm here to instill certain modalities, motivation, interviewing, different interventions, etc. In actuality, I often learn a lot of these lessons from my patient's work or my client work. We call it the parallel process for clinicians, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, anything comes up for you there because you work with literally all walks of life and, and all decades, as you talked about earlier. You know, I definitely, back in the day, one of the lessons that I've definitely learned is, and I probably think this is normal for a lot of therapists, is what I want for the client is not always what the client wants for themselves. That's a big lesson, is that it's not about my goals for them, it's what their goals are for them. You know, I want to say my biggest teachers are my children. Like, that's what's wonderful about having kids, is they teach you so much about yourself. And we were talking about this earlier. One of the things about kids is it's not about the raising of the kids, it's about the raising of the adult, of the raising、mm. of the parent. And that's a quote from Dr. Shivali. She's written some great books on conscious parenting. Children come along to reflect back to you your own childhood wounds and give you an invitation to heal them. And that's what my kids, I, I was 10 years sober when I had my first son, and I, I would consider myself having a black belt in mental health, right? <laughs> and、um, I found myself parenting in the way that my mother parented, and that was not how I wanted to raise my children. And it was a huge wake up call for me to go back and have to do some further work on myself in order to undo that in me. So I parented differently. That's interesting because going back to TikTok, just because it's been on my radar a lot, where a lot of people, not just TikTok, in real life, the, doing the work, air quote, I'm air、mm. quoting for audio listeners, where people have this fallacy that doing the work is following certain blueprints, shadow work, inner、yeah. child work, whatever fancy language you want to attach them as. But they often forget the work manifests when you're facing the same trigger. That brought you to the darkness to begin with. Concrete example if you were hurt and traumatized by a narcissistic partner through a very toxic relationship where your self worth was repeatedly stampled upon by a narcissist individual. Oh, I did, I spent two years doing the work, reading every help book s out there. I saw 16 different therapists, CBT, DBT, whatever you name it. That's part of the work. The real work is when you're facing the same individual. Can you speak up for yourself? Are you more assertive? Are you comfortable in your skin? But I think the last remaining equations of the work is not talked about because you have to confront your trauma for the cycle of healing to complete. And that is a fact. You can't heal without facing that demons that you were terrified of the first place. Any thoughts that comes up for you there? Yeah, that, I hear that a lot from clients will say, like, oh my God, you know, I'll say, like, how long have you been on this journey? Like, oh, two or three years. I've listened to every podcast. I've read all the Quitlet books. I've done, I'm like, that's not the work. That's just information. And information's good. I mean, certainly, that's going back to what I said about reading, that, that's where I found myself. I'm like, oh my God, that's me. Oh, you know, so those things, information is important. So I would boil down the work in quotation marks to a spiritual practice of revealing oneself to oneself. And that's the work that, and going back to the lessons, that never ends is that there are always opportunities for me to grow. And、um, growth is the, is the juice of life. We're all being called to grow. 
And when you grow, there is inevitably going to be resistance and struggle. And in that is the opportunity for me to reveal to myself to myself to learn more. That's a beautiful tangle of the richness of the human experience for me is that the, that's kind of what I hang my hat on in my work and in with my clients and in my personal work that that is what liberated me and gave me everything was a spiritual practice. And it is a practice. It's not one undone. It's ongoing of revealing myself to myself and constantly seeing this is a story you're telling yourself, Veronica. There's, there's the event. And then there's the story you tell yourself about the event. And that comes from X, Y, and Z or whatever. So that for me is, it, it is the biggest gift I've been given in sobriety. I think there's two kinds of people in this world. Everyone has stuff, everyone. And we're either working on it or we're not working on it. And you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference. You know, none of us, we're all muddling along, right? And that's what my addiction gave me is it push forced me into this world of personal development where I discovered the spiritual practice of self continuing to reveal myself to myself would hate to have lived my life without knowing it. That's great. Reminds me of a quote from this book I'm reading in my book club called The Black Box Thinking. Mm. I forgot the author's name. Uh, he's actually British, former table tennis champion, and now he's a consultant, prolific author. He talks about failure is a signpost. And in essence, failure is a violation of your expectations. Because when you fail, what you expected didn't happen. That's why you, you failed, right? And of course, you're also talking about meaning making. That's what you're saying. We get to make meanings of what happens to us. We internalize that in the way that we see fit and that we navigate and we recalibrate. I'm sharing, I'm talking about failure because I assume, I could be wrong, but I assume that your journey of sobriety wasn't, bam, I, I, I would do a handstand in a flower pot reciting national anthem and bam, here's a mountaintop of sobriety. Like has the signpost of failure maybe screamed at you at times? And how did you navigate the ebbs and flows? Because sobriety, just like spirituality, ebbs and flows. Once I sort of came out of the fog, I ran with the whole sobriety. Like I was deeply involved in the 12-step fellowships and all my friends were sober. And um, I got to three years of sobriety and I hit an emotional rock bottom. And, and that for me was going back to attachment and relationships I was really incapable of having a romantic relationship. I had so many attachment issues and I destroyed them very quickly. What I have wanted more than anything is to belong. Mm. That That is what's driven me. And I feel like I belong for probably the last 20 years. And, and I have the fam, like my greatest achievement in my life is my family, that I have created a healthy, happy imperfect, messy family unit. unit. But at three years sober, I that felt, you know, as close as being able to get on Elon's next flight to Mars. You know, I just, <laughs> I, I could see it was possible for other people, but not me. And again, that relationship pain, what happens with relationship pain and romantic relationships, we're, we're acting out our original pain from our childhood attachments with our parents. And, and it was just killing me. And I was suicidal again. I was three years sober. I didn't want to drink. 
but I was actively making the choice that I wasn't going to kill myself today because I didn't know how I was going to carry on living for 50 years feeling this way and not being able to have a close, intimate partner. And that forced me into doing much deeper work on myself, which is the work that I was just talking about, revealing myself to myself, which revealed all my attachment patterns that revealed that I was making choices. This wasn't being done to me. And I met my husband when I was about six years sober, I think. Yeah, that we have such a, I think we have a phobia of mistakes in our culture. I don't know. It's interesting culturally, the different cultures. Do you, I feel like in Asian cultures, messing up in mistakes is like, so we have a lot of Indian, Pakistani immigrants kind of worked in different ways with that they have um, addiction problems, but it's very hard to get them into treatment because there's so much shame and pride. And if the family knew, different to then if it would be a, a, you know, a white Londoner or something. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Phobia of mistakes. Interesting. I agree. In different, in different cults. Like I, I feel like we're raising a generation. I think millennials and gen, I think millennials, you're a millennial, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think there's been like a don't make, you know, like get into the right college. If you don't get into the right college, your life, your life is over. Like, whereas life is just actually mistakes. And, and what you learn in the struggle in between. That's actually what life is. Life is not, don't make any mistakes. That's not, right? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just jumping to conclusions there. No, no, no. I think life is comprised of learning, unlearning, conditioning, deconditioning, and a lot of mistakes. But I do agree that, I don't want to speak for the culture since I don't know, it's very limited scope of understanding. But I do want to say generally that I think your idea of phobia of mistakes can be paralleled with perfectionism. Yes. Where I read this somewhere that perfectionism is the greatest enemy to success or the greatest enemy to greatness. And I think a lot of us feel protected saying that, oh, I have a perfectionist tendencies. Who doesn't? Who doesn't want to do a perfect job, air quote, right? Everyone want to strive for perfection. And I think perfectionism in a way serves as like a buffer or like a cushion that, oh, if I didn't achieve the outcome I expected or intended to, then I could always say it was my perfectionism. And I think that's how phobia of mistakes to get manifested. But the thing is like mistakes are air quote costly as you get older. So if anything, we need to encourage mistakes. And of course, mother uh, failure is a mother of all innovations. It's a lot of tropes out there, right? At the same time, I do agree we, sh- we need to front load mistakes because I frame or reframe suffering as a growing pain because I think that's what suffering is. Like Nietzsche, the great, uh, the great nihilistic philosopher and many great thinkers talked about this before us where you will learn the lessons like you said earlier. Oh, you didn't learn? No worries. It will come knock, knock its way door into your life again. And I think uh, we do need to move past this phobia of mistakes because I think it comes out to face value, perceived perceptions by others, not really about yourself. And I think that gets manifested also internally. But I never thought about phobia of mistakes, but I, I think you're right. I think that's very valid. I think it's very, I think these, there's a lot of things that are connected here. And, and one of them is shame. And how, like, so my husband's from San Francisco, worked in the Silicon Valley for a long time. And like, and he did his PhD in Cambridge in England where we met. And like, he always used to say like in England, you know, if you have like a company that fails or startup that fails, it's like, 
like there's just embarrassment and shame. He said, in the Silicon Valley, like people would just be like, so what's your next plan? What are you doing next? Like, like people just, it's just very accepted that most startups fail and, and, and there was a process there and you learned loads. So what, you, what you doing next? There's no, it, yeah, there's a lot tied up there with shame. And then perfectionism is the weapon that we use to shield our vulnerability. So when you have someone who has acute perfectionism, it's because they're terrified of being vulnerable. And, and you, you can't have meaningful connection without vulnerability. There's no other way. So it's very isolating and very lonely. And all of those things are entwined. Again, being European, coming to America. So for example, in American culture, and I wonder if you've noticed this, it's the middle class. All it is, is about what college your child is going to get into. That, that's it. It's like a nuclear arms race. And it's not like that in the UK. Now we have good colleges and it's certainly prestigious, but it's just not the same. Like if your kid went to a technical college or went into the workplace, like there's just not the same kind of kudos that they give it in America. And I feel that that got out of control with your generation, millennials, where if you did not get into the best college, then you, you, may, you may as well just go and pick up trash now because your life's over. And like, and it's like, and I, you know, so it was very interesting to me. I had a practice in Cambridge, one of the top schools in the world. And, and, oh my gosh, all my clients were just, every single one of them believed that they'd got there by mistake. Like there'd been some error somewhere that they got admitted. And any day now they were going to be find out, found out and kicked out of their program or whatever. And I feel this kind of not making a mistake, you know, like high, you know, high school doing everything, you know, doing all the clubs, everything, everything. So you get like, I, I, oh my God, you didn't get accepted to archery. Oh my God, that's not going to look. So I, 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 again, maybe that's just a, the middle class culture in America. I feel like some from that has come this not making mistakes and, and going back to what I was saying about how important the struggle is. So the parenting styles is very interesting. I'm generation X. Generation X was raised with benign neglect. We were the generation that went off in the school vacation. Nobody knew where we were. We came back when we were hungry and nobody cared. Gen Z are monitored on their parents' phones. Their parents know exactly where they are at every single given point. And they're not, you know, I find that interesting. Like Gen X is parenting Gen Z. And so I find all of that interesting and the messages we got. And I think the biggest thing I see in my peer group of parents is because we now have this phenomenon, it's called like snowplow parenting, where parenting parents just move, remove every obstacle in their child's path. Um, the, the worst thing you can do as a parent is steal the struggle from your kids. But it's the hardest thing to do is to watch your kids struggle, which it all comes back to is this enormous amount of work that you get to, personal development work, work you get to do as a human being by being a parent all these invitations to do these these things. So I think there's there's shame, there's vulnerability, there's perfectionism, there's this cult of not making a mistake, whereas that's faulty thinking. It's all about making mistakes. I mean, if you look at little kids, right, when they're, you look at a baby learning to walk, all it does is make mistakes. That's all it does. And we never look at that baby and go, maybe they're not a walker, <laughs> right? We just let them tumble and fall and pull things down until they figure it out. And that's how childhood development is. And then it's like we reach a certain point where you're not allowed to tumble and fall ever again. It's, it's kind of interesting. I feel that that's 
a bit more American than in other places. I agree, and I think kids, or I know that kids who fall the most riding bicycles or learning how to ride bicycles, they learn by bi riding bicycle the fastest. Yeah. And according to family system within psychotherapy,、uh, and this is a fact, where good enough parents are the best parents. Yes. Not perfect, just、mm -hmm. good enough where、yeah. your kids struggle the right amount, and you still show up emotionally, so the attachment process still happens. But you're not always them. You're not parachuting. You're not scooping them, and you're not saving them from every challenges. Just good enough parents. And I think a lot of parents who are surprised to hear that they're like, "What do you mean, just good enough?" In our society, there is no such thing as just good enough. You have to be the best at whatever you do. Yes, that's that's a hundred percent true. When you were saying that earlier about perfectionism, I was thinking. Yeah, no, I'm not. I don't ever think about perfectionism. I am quite comfortable in the land of good enough. Yeah, I'm really, <laughs> really good there. And and again, having children will cure you of that because I, before I had kids, I could get it all done. And after you have kids, you just can't get it done. You just have to accept that that has to be good enough. Yeah, sounds like your kids tell you a lot about surrender. Yeah, yeah. You're you're constantly, you know, you can really get caught up in like. All your kids, all kids want is connection with their parents. That's all they want. I, I look back and I've paid like too much money for fancy birthday parties. And in September 2020, my son was turning I don't know, was he nine or something? And and we were like, okay, let's just like three friends in the park outside and a pizza. Best birthday party he's ever had. <laughs> It was the connection. Yeah, meaningful connections. Yeah, that they yeah. deem as meaningful. Yeah. Veronica, if you could give a two to three minute TED talk, how would you educate me about the science behind alcohol addictions? Because I think there's a lot of misinformations out there, like what it is, what it is not, maybe some of the harmful effect it has on our physiology, biology,、uh, whatever directions you want to take within this two three minute TED talk container. First of all, you—that's the last TED talk I would ever give because I'm the most unscientific person you've ever met. <laughs> I don't like. It's just not my, how I think. So I'll have to change the title of my TED talk because I do what I do is the emotional, spiritual. That's the stuff that I can talk about. I always give my clients. Was, have you heard? Of, you must have heard of Dr. Huberman in his podcast. Yeah. So he did an episode on alcohol and what it does to the body and brain, and it's so fascinating. And I, I give that to all my clients because you really have to know that information. <laughs> I'm like, go listen to that. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I would talk about is emotional sobriety, and that that ten percent is not drinking, and ninety percent is emotional sobriety. And emotional sobriety is when we feel comfortable in our own skins and have appropriate emotional responses to events, and that the result of that means that we like ourselves. And in order to have emotional sobriety, there's certain skills. That we have to master, and and these are not unique to people with an addiction problem. This is true of everybody. And if we don't have them, you can see how people are, you know, trying to compensate in different ways. So we have to have balance and boundaries. If we can't, if we don't have boundaries, we can't be happy and successful without boundaries. And and that was a core thing for me. I had I didn't even know what a boundary was. Didn't know it was a thing. Didn't know I could have boundaries with my mother. Didn't know how life changing having boundaries was, and that was the beginning of the process of、um, getting free 
of the good and bad opinion of other people because I was very, very married to the belief that other people's approval and them liking me was was essential. Once I was free of that, I mean, you just got it, it's you can tie yourself up, up in knots worrying what other people think about you. You can think so many more interesting things when you're free of that. And you can only do that with really good boundaries. And boundaries is an exercise of allowing people to be upset with you if you're not doing them doing what you want them to do. And then if you have boundaries, then you can have balance. It's about balancing your needs. And I find balance fascinating because it's so evolving and ongoing. You know, how I balance my needs today, because I've had three hours sleep because my kids were sick all night, uh, it's going to be very different to how I'll balance it on Thursday when hopefully I'll have more sleep and everybody will be well again. So um, balance is, it's the art of balance, balancing your needs of, you know, I kind of sense with, right now, you you do remind me of myself when I was that age, you have a hunger to know things. Like you're very, very curious, like you're like eating it up and I, I want to be able to read this and do that and study that. And I remember feeling that way. And, and that's a, an important need to be satisfied. And then you have like, needs for connection and health and you know all of those kind of things and it evolves and changes as you grow older covid taught us that you know how we meet our needs during lockdown and then the other pillars of emotional sobriety is being able to deal with resentments and that for me is the tent pole of the work of sobriety is the resentment work everybody has resentments and we get stuck in them and and they're very, very entwined with the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And they help us reveal the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. That's the really important bit that we're just not aware of it um, until we it's revealed to us. And then what's revealed is our limiting beliefs, which all come from childhood, which is, I think, the work, the work of adulthood. I, I know when my sons are young men, I'm I hope I'll impart all of this to them in that despite you know our good intentions and mummy having a black belt with mental health we still will have given you some stuff that's really unhelpful and some belief systems and, and perhaps some stuff that's not a good fit and that you may need to challenge and and get rid of some of it you know casting off limiting beliefs i think is a lifelong process and that's the you know people some people are doing the work and some people are not doing the work and you can spot the difference and you we can see that observe this so well in other people right people who are just stuck in their story i find that fascinating so that would be my te TED talk. It would be on emotional sobriety and what are the key pieces of work we need that everyone needs to do to establish emotional sobriety. And then I'd tell everyone else to go and see Dr. Huberman about the brain science. <laughs> great neuroscientist at Stanford and great podcast. And I think that's the title of this episode, uh, Emotional Sobriety or something along the line. Um, and I would... I'm more scientific. I think you're the emotional attuned version of me and I'm the more scientific version of you. So I will add on some ad notes to this TED talk where I think I was surprised by this. A lot of people, at least in America, are still having this distorted belief that addiction is a matter of willpower. Yes. If, if, if you're addicted, you're lazy, yeah. you're, you're incompetent, you're weak-minded. And addiction is not a willpower and this is a scientific fact where w addiction is a neurobiological disease it creates permanence changes your brain structures it changes your homeostasis the your dopamine release level your serotonin releases cortisol stress hormones etc so addiction has nothing to do with willpower if anything the lawyers 
doctors we alluded to in the beginning of this conversation, they have some of the most rigorous willpower there ever is. Look at veterans and special force. They have more willpower than you can even fathom. Yet many of them are addicts, substance, drugs, or alcohol. So I just want to create a space to share that information to dispel that it's very dangerous if society as a whole at large associates willpower and determinism with addiction because that is a dangerous road to go down to. How it's been viewed and how it's very much still viewed as a moral issue. And again, just bring to bring in, you know, different cultures, it's like, again, depending what where you come from, it's like you're more, more morally bad than this group of people, um, you know, mothers, for example. So it, it's still, again, it's seen as a moral issue. You know, why can't you just moderate? Like, like, duh, like I never thought of that. Um, I just feel like for me, I'm, it's the how bit that is, is the most interesting and important bit for me, because it's like, it's important to know that, but I still, I'm still uncomfortable in my own skin. <laughs> So what do I do about that bit? So I, I get that it's a brain disease and I get all of those things, but I still don't like myself and I need that bit to change. And so the emotional sobriety stuff that we've talked about is like, I need to know how that change. What is the equivalent of standing upside down in a plant pot every day and singing the national anthem? What is the things I have to do so I feel, um, so I like myself and I feel comfortable in my own skin? Yeah, I agree. Those things are really important to know because they influence policy and treatment and all of that kind of stuff. I want the, and then how do I change it? No, and I think it speaks to why you're very successful as a former therapist, now an alcohol recovery expert and coach. Because just like how we disproved like classical economics, where consumers are not rational, that's already been disproven like decades ago. Likewise, humans are not logical. Humans are emotional animals, period. And otherwise, facts and stats would eradicate all injustice and addictions in the world. That's not the case because humans are emotional at heart. So I grew up, the drug prevention I grew up with in, in the 1980s was just say no. Just say no because, you know, if you take heroin, you could die. Like, just say no. And I'm like, it's Friday and I really fancy that guy. And the only way I'm ever going to talk to him is if I've had three drinks. So I actually did it talking about TikTok, did a TikTok on this a little while ago, is that it's not always the drinking experience that it's that is the most fun. It's the anticipation of the drinking experience. It's the belief that it will bring me feelings. It's the belief that it's a vehicle to this land I very much want to visit. I mean, who does not want to go to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, picture, right? That sounds awesome. So it's the belief that that I, it will get me those feelings like, yeah, I know it can cause like a hundred cancers and blah, blah, blah. But today I'd really like to be in that land. Everything is driven by emotions, which is going back to behavior patterns. It doesn't matter what someone says about what's going on in their life. Their behavior pattern will tell you what's going on in their life. You know, I have... Uh, often we'll have clients who have a partner who's drinking and oh like this time they, they promised they swore they they've re i really believe they mean it this time they've really done this time i'm like where have they gone and got you know gone to a meeting got any help because talk is cheap you know it's the pattern of behavior that will tell you how we feel we behave how we feel yeah i often tell my clients that Hopefully through self-explorations and container of the psychotherapy where you get to pause 
and reflect and review the archives of your behaviors and patterns. Mm. Like, are you showing up to your loved ones the way you're proud of? Are you showing up to work the way you're proud of, etc.? And as you said, I do feel like behaviors are manifestations of internal. But we, I think, all of us need to review periodically the archives of how we're how we're showing up day to day, and whether that's alcohol, whether that's drugs, whether that's emotional challenges or emotional lack of sobriety. I'm thinking about Simon Sinek, great author, The Power of Why. He talks about the core circle is why, how, what, and I think what and the how will take care of themselves through information, through community, through resources. There are so many alcohol recovery resources out there, and that's the power of millennials, right? Informations and access to internet. Uh, but I think, as you talked about, and I think Tony Robbins talked about that: we're more motivated to escape from pain than pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. That's where I got it from. Yeah, yeah, a great book. Um, but I think once you discern your why, I think the rest will come through time and through patience and self grace. Because as you know, trauma work or addiction work is very, very tough. It's really, really difficult. It takes time, and、um, it's painful to see how painful the clients themselves feel in the process.、Um, this feeling of absence of hope, absence of change. But I always want to impart some self compassion and some grace for ourselves because without that grace, change is not going to happen.、Um, because I think discernment, as you talked about earlier, also requires self grace. So one of the things that clients say to me a lot is getting sober is really hard, and I always push back on that and say it's not. Having a drink problem is really hard. You know, being hungover is really hard. Have you ever been to work on a hangover? Like, have you ever been full of shame and self-loathing about something you can't quite remember? That's really hard. Sobriety takes effort, and and that it's it, that's a different frame than hard. Hard doesn't feel attractive or good. <laughs> I don't want to do anything that's hard, but something that requires effort. And I feel like it's the same with any kind of psycho, you know, any kind of therapeutic work, like trauma or whatever. It re- it requires effort, but to not do it is harder. To live not doing that work, I feel, is harder. But that's why a lot of people are just numbing with substances, and it's like that. Oh, to not be present in your life, to to miss your life, you know, this these finite years that we have. That's oh, I'm going to steal that from you. I'm going to reframe changes hard to changes effortful. It's because, effort, yeah, yeah. Because like soberful, effortful. I do talk about where all worthy things are effortful, and all effortful things are worthy. And I think that ties into the ethos of your mission statement and all your work beautifully. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have an engagement. You're running on three hours of sleep. A lot of uh, <laughs> hopefully, lot I of, made sense. <laughs> yeah, oh, I did. Um, I, I learned a lot as I as I often do in these containers, but. Where can people check you out further? Connect with you, not just follow you, but ask you meaningful and engaging conversations. Because as Tony Robbins also once said, better questions lead to better answers, and the quality of questions dictate the quality of your life. So I'm on pretty much most. I'm on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. So either Veronica Valley V A L L I or Soberful. I have a large Facebook group called Soberful. My book Soberful is on Amazon and all other retailers. If you just Google Soberful or Veronica Valley, hopefully I should come up. I have a website and blah blah blah, and、uh, you can reach out to me in all of those different places. 
Yeah, and I strongly recommend um, their podcast uh, where Veronica co-hosts with a Chip. I believe Chip was described by Russell Brands as like um, imports and social liability. Oh uh, uh, yeah, my co-host. Like, if you met him, he looks like he spent his entire year in libraries reading academic <laughs> books, and he was a a right social liability is how he described him. He was like a hardcore street homeless drug addict, lots of crime life support twice really really turned his life around yeah that's like the post-traumatic growth some of the most gracious and amazing people i've met they have some of the hardest pain teachers people talk about ptsd but post-traumatic growth is also equally powerful if not more with that being said do you have any other parting messages for the uh for the listeners and people tuning in before uh we conclude today's amazingly amazing conversation so I, one thing that I would say is that um, you can get to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxing, rewarding yourself sober, and it's better. And you have to give yourself a little bit of time, and it's good to have a guide to get there, someone who's a, hopefully an expert or professional. But once you get there, all of that, everything is better sober. Uh, that's been my experience and the experience of everyone that I've worked with. And I also would like to thank you for your service. Benoit in doing this but your service in the military as well thank you and uh yeah we can gradually go from a place of land of the brave and freedom to land of the sobriety and fun and i do feel like collective changes is effortful and takes time yeah thank you for your thoughtfulness and thank you for your time today thank you so much and as always hope to see you again in the next week's train of discover more thank you for tuning in